Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, it's so good to be with you. If you would grab your copy of God's Word and join me in Acts 19, Acts 19, and just hold your place there for a moment, we will finish, Lord willing, if He gives me life and health and breath to do so, we will finish chapter 19 today, and then we'll enter sort of that that final push through the end of Acts. This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of when God's Word prevails, when God's Word prevails prevails, three results, three impacts, three things that happen when God's word prevails from Acts chapter 19 verses 21 through 41. Last week in verse 20, we read the word continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we are in Ephesus and God's word is on the run. It's prevailing in his church And we're going to see three things that happen when the gospel prevails in a community, a city, a country, a county. What does it look like when God's word prevails? It's a good question. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord beginning in verse 21? Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were, his fri- who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is 
temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, we ask in this text, which is quite lengthy, that you would solidify in our minds what you're doing and what you are teaching us. God, that, that we would be a people through whom your word might prevail in the Roanoke Valley. And God, that we might be ready for it, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. God, that your word would run and that people would come to saving faith in Christ We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the people throughout Asia, by this time in the text, they have heard the gospel, right? The the Roman province of Asia has been saturated with the gospel. And we would expect that once Asia has been saturated with the gospel, that Paul is going to want to get out of town and get somewhere else where they don't yet have the gospel. This is Paul's strategy. He tells us about it over in Romans 15. He says, I don't want to build on anybody else's foundation. Once I've populated a place with the gospel, once there's enough access to the gospel to know that anybody who wants to hear about Jesus will do so in a way that's clear and compelling and accurate, then I'm ready to move on and get the gospel where? To the ends of the earth. And so we read in verse 21 that Paul resolved to return to Macedonia and Achaia to go back to the places where he's already planted churches and then to visit Jerusalem, likely to take the benevolence offering, the relief offering for poor Christians back to Jerusalem. But then after he's done that, strengthened the churches, taken the offering to Jerusalem, what does he say? But he must get to Rome. He must see Rome. This is a divine must have to do it, under a divine obligation to do it. His resolve is spirit-led resolve. It is a resolve that is consistent with the purpose for which the Spirit has come, right? Why did the Spirit come, Acts 1.8? To empower us to be witnesses, not just to Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you want to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, a good place to go is Rome. But for now... He stays back in Ephesus while his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, go ahead of him. Did you know Paul oftentimes had helpers? Did you know you need helpers in ministry? You can't be solo very long in ministry before you get weary and it just, it, you just, it's overwhelming. So here's Paul. He was, he was solo for a little while in Antioch, but now he's got some helpers, Timothy and Erastus. And, and the word helpers is attendants or deacons, Right? They're, they're Paul's deacons. They're just, they're just helping him out. Whatever you need, Paul, we're here. You're the tip of the spear. We're going to hold up your arms. We're going to carry your bags. Whatever you need, we are with you in this gospel 
work. He had teammates in the work of the gospel. And he sends his teammates on ahead to prepare the churches that he will eventually come to. And he stays back in Ephesus. And I'm so thankful that he does. I don't fully understand why he does. But it gives us an opportunity to see sort of the climax of Paul's gospel ministry and what it looks like when the gospel saturates a city and a community. Do you want that in Roanoke? You want the gospel to saturate the Roanoke Valley? This is what it looks like. This is sort of the the climax of Paul's ministry. He will eventually get to Rome in prison, right? But we're told that Paul's going to be commissioned as a an ambassador to the Gentiles, and he gets to Ephesus, and man, people are coming to saving faith like crazy. The whole region is saturated. So what does it look like when the gospel penetrates a community deep down? What does it look like when the gospel advances deep into a community? That's what we're going to see, and Luke's going to show us in this text, and he's also going to prepare us, even though that's awesome, that some obstacles will also come, all right? So three things that happen. The first thing that happens in a community or a county or a city or a country that Luke shows us that happens in a community that is overrun with the gospel is that those who profit from false worship will be impacted financially. Those who profit from false worship are impacted financially. In verse 23 through 26, we learn that the growth of God's word in Ephesus throughout the Roman province of Asia led, do you see it, to no little disturbance. What does that mean? It was a big disturbance, right? I I love how Luke puts it. It was no little disturbance. What does that mean? It was a massive disturbance, all right? Concerning what? The way Christians, Christ followers, those who follow Jesus, there's a disturbance about Christians and what they believe. Peterson says this, Christians in Ephesus were being clearly identified as a socially cohesive movement, a movement arising out of and grounded in their shared faith in Jesus. In other words, people were beginning to identify Christians as a unique community with a shared identity as followers of Jesus. This was making them stranger and stranger in the world. Did you know the more familiar you are to God, the more strange you will be in this world? strangers and aliens in Ephesus, no longer following that false god Artemis or beholding to the local civic religion. And in verse 21, excuse me, verse 24, we meet Demetrius, a silversmith who's not very happy about the problem that he sees brewing. A silver, as a silversmith, much of his business, no little business, verse 24, And the business that he brought to his craftsmen involving the making of the shrines of Artemis, this business was put at risk. These shrines were small replicas of the temple or of the goddess Artemis, and they were used like little idols in all sorts of places, in homes, in in workplaces, in the market. People even put them on their graves. As Bruce notes, Artemis was not the Greek goddess of the ancient, excuse me, not the Greek goddess, but an ancient local deity, a mother goddess of Asia Minor. She was named Artemis, which means safe, because she was thought to keep the people safe and sound. She was also thought to be a virgin who helped women 
in childbirth. And Ephesus was very excited about Artemis. But the Spirit, in the hearing of the gospel, was creating a new community. A community of the king oriented around King Jesus and not Artemis or any other false gods. And so Demetrius gathers these silversmiths, these craftsmen, and the workers relate in engaged in related trades. There's a whole tourism industry around Artemis that's in Ephesus. People come from miles around to get their Artemis trinkets. Artemis is on the local currency. Artemis, Artemis, Artemis. And Demetrius is like, if Artemis and her power are broken, we're going to be broke. Men, you know, verse 25, that from this business we have our wealth. In other words, We know that our bread is buttered by Artemis, but lots of people are now feasting on Jesus, the bread of life, and we've got to stop him if we're going to keep eating. Y'all with me? We've got a problem. And here's the truth, beloved. If the gospel takes root in the Roanoke Valley, if the gospel should so, so sweep across our country that Christians actually went all in living for Jesus and many more came to saving faith in Jesus, it would have profound social and economic effects in our community and our country. The multi-billion dollar porn industry would take a massive hit. Bars would have to pivot from cold brewskis to Coca-Cola to stay afloat. And by the way, they wouldn't pivot to Pepsi. I mean, you want to go out of business fast, serve Pepsi. I'm just saying. There would, there would be no more retina-frying LED signs in shop windows advertising CBD, tobacco, and vape products. People could leave their doors unlocked, and it wouldn't be a problem Detectives would be quite bored. Hollywood would have to go undergo a significant change in the narrative of its stories and the images that they show. Marriages would be mended, and that would have a massive effect at the courthouse and among diverse attorneys and among the children who are subject to marriages that are imploding. People would be liberated from the lies that they are believing about identity and marriage and sexuality, lies that are benefiting absolutely no one other than the surgeons, pharmaceutical companies, and counselors that are perpetuating a lie that is patting their pockets, but crippling a generation of people in their minds and in their bodies. When revival comes, we're going to know it. Teachers wouldn't have to wonder if an elementary school student would walk into a class with a gun, and parents wouldn't have to wonder if anyone involved in their kids' education, from the teacher's aide to the White House, would ever take aim at the fundamentals of the Christian faith. All the children currently waiting in foster care would be placed. Some of you have a home, you got a bedroom, and God is needing you. He is wanting you to take a child into your home and raise them up right here at North Roanoke Baptist Church for the sake of the gospel. Some of you have the resources to do it. you got the power to do it. you got the economy to do it. You just need to do it. If you need help researching that, I'd be honored and blessed to help you with that. All the children waiting in foster care in Virginia would be placed. And vastly greater percentages of children yet to be born would be raised by a mom and a dad who would assume assume for themselves the first and greatest responsibility for training their kids to nurture and discipline and inspire and lead their children to King Jesus. And you're sitting there this morning, you're saying, this sounds impossible. I've got good news. It is. 
unless God moves. The only way this happens is if God does it. But why, ought, why shouldn't we pray this way? We're seeing in Ephesus that the gospel is so taking hold that the economy is being upended by it. We've seen in revivals in the past, at the turn of the last century, we saw revivals in the British Isles where the prisoners were set free because they were all saved and they didn't end up reincarcerated because they didn't commit crimes anymore. The bars were out of business because nobody was going to the bar anymore. This has literally happened in world history before. Happened in the great awakenings in our United States of America. It happened in Ephesus. It can happen in the in the Roanoke Valley. Now, we can't make it happen, but we can beg God for it to happen. We can be a people ready and through whom that God could do this, right? Church, when the Word of God, not a policy or personality or a preacher, but the Word of God increases and prevails mightily, it brings real societal and economic change, not because people picketed or petitioned, but because the Word of God was proclaimed. And many people were powerfully changed by God, such that many no longer worship false gods. Look, church, we're, we're not going to change the Roanoke Valley because we put prayer back in schools. By the way, when they took prayer out of schools, people didn't stop praying. As long as they have tests, people are going to pray in school. <laughs> Putting prayer back in schools is not going to change our country. Getting every societal policy change you want at Capitol Hill and in Richmond is not going to change our country. Policy doesn't change your heart. Now you say, well, you're saying we shouldn't lobby, we shouldn't advocate. Of course you should do that as long as you have the freedom to do it. But if we misplace our priority and we put our hope in a program or a policy change rather than the power of God applied to a sinner's heart, we've lost it. It's the gospel that changes lives. Can you imagine... If revival should come to our country and sex no longer sold and greed no longer motivated people to gamble, gamble away their hard-earned wages and generosity really flowed from every Christian into his church such that his church could be the conduit of blessing in his community that God wants us to be? Can you imagine in our society and in our school curricula if people were not being taught to be judged by the color of their skin but rather by the content of their character as Martin Luther King Jr. will celebrate that on Monday as he desired? Can you imagine if personal family and work responsibility were not undermined in our society but they were rewarded and encouraged in our culture? How can this happen? Not by policies but by the power of God changing people from the inside out. This sort of revival-induced transformation is underway in Ephesus, and it's underway in almost all of Asia, verse 26. Why? Because God is working through Paul, and he has convinced many and turned away many, not just from Artemis, but from all idols. Why? Because, verse 26, God's made with hands are not God's. God's made with our minds aren't God's either. There's only the one true God. Any God of your invention or innovation is not God. There is God alone. And church, when God revives the Roanoke Valley, and I pray He'll start with me and then spread into us, when He revives the Roanoke Valley, it will bring significant change. Not because we lobbied for them, but because who we worship impacts what we do. Where we go. What we value. How we spend our time. How we spend our money. 
when revival comes, it'll impact the economy. But secondly, when revival comes, some will attack Christians as a threat to the common good. Some will attack Christians as a threat to the common good. Well, you know, that's, those Christians, are, they're bad for society. They're hurting people. They're anti-American. They're anti-freedom because, you know, they don't think people can just decide what they're going to be. They can't identify as purple today. They can't identify as a kitty cat today. Why? Because God has truth. And, well, you now you're anti-freedom and you're anti, anti-liberty. No, we're not. We're pro-common sense. But some people... When Christianity rises and the Word of God takes hold in community, some will attack believers as a threat to the common good. Verse 27 through 34 is where we see this. In verse 27, Demetrius pivots from the problem of his profitability to a broader argument that's going to affect everybody, to a religious and civic or social argument. And here's, here's the argument that runs between the lines starting in verse 27, all right? It's this. To diminish the goddess Artemis is to diminish the city Ephesus. If you're going to take aim at Artemis, you're going to take aim at Ephesus and all the Ephesian residents. To reject idolatry is to be a bad actor, acting in bad faith, ignoring or or undercutting the Ephesian identity where Artemis was known as the founder and guide of the city. And her name and image were found on coins and official documents. And she was regarded as the protectors, as the protector of the city's fortifications and general welfare. It wasn't God who protected the general welfare of Ephesus, they thought. They thought it was Artemis. Luke is showing us how powerful is the appeal to the status quo as a reason to reject gospel transformation. Does that make sense? Well, this is the way things have always been around Artemis. This is the way things have always been in America. This is the way things have always been in my church. So I'm not going to change anything in light of what the gospel says. Is the status quo a God in your life? Demetrius is counting on it being a God in Ephesus. It's going to upend our economy. It's going to upend our trade. What will people say of Ephesus? In Thessalonica and Corinth, y'all... Paul is opposed by Jews who refuse to see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. But now in Philippi and then in Ephesus, who is Paul opposed by? He's opposed by Gentiles who perceive the gospel as a threat to their own status quo, their own religious beliefs and practices, and they see it as a threat to their social and economic life. I love the irony in verse 27. If you really think that your God is so good at keeping you safe and sound, then do you really need to worry that her temple is going to be discredited or that she will be deposed from her magnificence or cast down from her greatness? Do you see what I'm saying? Artemis is great, but oh no, no one's regarding Artemis anymore. Well, what do you care if Artemis is so great and powerful, Artemis can advocate for herself. Aren't you glad that we belong to the one true God? The God who stands all over all the false gods and all the powers. The God whose, whose glory and fame and prominence is not dependent upon his popularity. 
If, if the Lord Jesus Christ loses a popularity contest in the Roanoke Valley, he is still the living Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and returning for all who run to him. None of that changes. I, I'm not, I want people to fall at the feet of Jesus, but I don't care if Jesus is popular or not at any given moment. That doesn't, that doesn't give me a, uh, you know, anxiety about, is, is Jesus still God? Can God still move? I, I'm not worried about that one whit. I know he can't. But Demetrius believes that as Artemis goes, so goes Ephesus, and her popularity is on the decline. Now, it's an exaggeration by Demetrius to say that all Asia and the world worshipped her, but temples to Artemis were quite widespread during that day. And the Ephesian temple and the city were at the heart of the worship of Artemis. So here's what Demetrius is saying, in essence. Failure to support our goddess is an attack on Ephesians and Ephesus. And this is confirmed by the emotional response that we see in verse 28. What do they do? He goes to his workers, he's making this argument, and it says they were enraged. Literally, they were full of anger. And what do they chant? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The implication is clear. You aren't for Artemis, and if you aren't for Artemis, you aren't for Ephesus. Instead, you're against us. You're against our fame and our glory and our economy and our values and our traditions and our way of life. Beloved, we've got to pray for revival. We must pray for revival. We must pray that God would start with us and that the gospel would run and overflow into our city and our community. But we must understand that even if that happens, it doesn't mean that suddenly everyone's going to like us. I think sometimes we pray for revival thinking that America circa 1950 is going to come back. And everybody's going to ride their bikes in their neighborhood and they're going to be safe and everything's going to be wonderful and everybody will just be Christian. That's not what happens in Ephesus. There's people who are decidedly not Christian even though the gospel's on the run. There will still be opposition. Heaven on, heaven on earth comes in full when Jesus returns. All right? So... Real revival is going to have Christians, even in our country, portrayed as those who are against the common good. When revival comes, we will still be called narrow-minded, unloving, bigoted, hurting the economy and the community. And it, it hurts to hear those things. I, I don't like to be told that I don't love my neighbor because I stand for truth, even when they can't see what the truth is. But if you abandon the truth to love your neighbor, you've not loved them at all. It's got to be the truth in love, but it ain't love if you leave behind the truth. I just said ain't. I'm a little upset, a little excited. You say, Daniel, I just, I just... I don't like the pain of living for Jesus. I don't like what happens at the workplace when I'm the new diversity policy came down and it's full of a bunch of gobbledygook that is insane and everybody's acting like it's fine and I know it's not fine and it's crushing my spirit. I understand. But you know who understands more than I do? King Jesus. You know who's with you as you navigate those hard decisions about when it's time to quit and go do something else because it's just gone too far and you got to stand for Christ in the marketplace. You know somebody else who knows what that's like? His name is Jesus. 
He knows full well what it's like to be rejected for following the will of his Father. He knows what it's like to sustain us, and he, he can, through the Holy Spirit, sustain us in the storms of rejection that will surely come if revival comes. Beloved, if we are following King Jesus and we want others to follow King Jesus, we will not always be liked. Let me say that again. If you're here thinking, man, I, I want to be a part of a church that's going to be liked all the time. North Roman Baptist Church is not going to be liked all the time. When, when culture and society say things that are contrary to the Word of God and say that we have to embrace them to be loving or to be Christian, we're not going to go down that path. We're going to stand with Jesus. And it's going to be hard at times. And that's okay. Because to suffer for Christ is a great thing because you know who's there to minister to you, Christ, who suffered for your sake. I submit to you, if you're always liked while you follow Jesus, you're not doing it very well. In verse 29 and 32, Luke highlights the crowd's confusion. The word means to be in an uproar or in disarray. In verse 32, we read that they have come together, but they really don't know why. Have you ever felt like that in society? Like, they're, they're against Christ. They're, they know they're not excited about Christianity and Christians. And then you start to have a dialogue with somebody about facts and truth. And they're like, I don't even know how I got here. They're just totally confused. They're irrational. They don't have an argument to stand on. But they're really upset about something. Small group accuses Christians of being essentially anti-Artemis and anti-Ephesus. And people lose their minds. Satan knows how to play on people's emotions and distract them from the gospel facts that they should be considering. So the city rushes into the theater, attracted by the loud shouting of Demetrius and his craftsmen and Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. What happens? They're dragged against their will into the mob. And in verse 30, Paul, what does he want to do? He wants to get in there, of course. He wants to defend his compadres, his colleagues, and he wants to die for them if he has to. But we've just read that Paul has to get to Rome, so what, is, what happens? God uses some of the disciples in Ephesus to restrain Paul. Literally, the text says they were not allowing him to enter. What does that mean? Paul was trying to enter. He's like, I'm going in there. And they're like, no, you're not. Pull you back in here. So there's this tug of war going on with Paul. And then we learn that even the Asiarchs, who were bureaucratic officials with fixed terms, didn't want him to come in. He had befriended these officials. I love this picture in the text. Society will be against Christians, but it doesn't mean Christians turn themselves against society. What has Paul done? Even these Asiarchs who haven't trusted Christ yet know that Paul wants good for them. He wants their best, and somehow they're like, well, we don't want Paul to end up murdered on this day. We don't believe in his Jesus, but we know he's not against us as people. He's loved us personally, and when the moment of inflection comes and there's a crisis, what do they do? They send word to Paul, hey, you better not come in here right now, and Paul doesn't go. Why were they in there? In verse 32, the mob grows more confused, some saying one thing and some another, and most had no idea why they were even there. They had heard a rally cry and believed the worst, whatever that was, and they came running and they joined in the shouting. And here's the reality. 
when Satan seeks to attack Christians and undermine the gospel, he often uses confusion because truth and clarity are on, always on the side of Jesus and his people. Let me say that again. Truth and clarity are always on the side of Jesus and his people. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In verse 33, the Jews in the crowd put forward Alexander who moves with his hand. What's he doing? He's motioning for silence. Hey, I, I want to say something here. And the Jews put him forward to clarify that though they are also monotheists, that they don't believe in Artemis either, that they, unlike the Christians, they're not going to make trouble for Ephesus. So he wants to say and be like, hey, 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 just make sure that you distinguish between the crazy Christians and the Jews. We've been here for centuries, and we've let y'all do your thing. That's what he's trying to say. But when they realize that he's a Jew, they all cried out once again in, a, in one voice for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What happens when a rally and a mob gets together and shouts for two hours under no direction? What usually happens? People get hurt. People die. And it would seem at this point almost hopeless that Christians would be able to survive a massive and sudden shift in public opinion in Ephesus. It would seem that as fast as Christianity had risen in the city of Ephesus, that it would now die. And Gaius and Aristarchus, the first to go. But what happens? In verse 35 through 41. Beloved, here's what I want to close with this morning. God's purposes and people will prevail. No matter how dark, how hard, how confusing, how distraught you may feel where you are. If you are in Christ, if you are for Christ, if you are walking in obedience to the Spirit, no matter what happens and comes your way, God is sovereign. He is over all things. And His purposes and His people will ultimately prevail. In verse 35, the town clerk, think the city manager or the county administrator, he restrains the crowd. And the reason that he gives for restraining the crowd is they're worked up over nothing. They've made a mountain out of a molehill. Do you really think that people are going to somehow make, make people believe that Ephesus isn't about Artemis? In other words, it's so obvious that, that Ephesus and Artemis go together that there's nothing to worry about here. Now, he wasn't right about that, but he's worried about his job. In verse 36, he, he argues that these facts about Ephesus and Artemis are undeniable, and it's, it's time to be quiet. Just quiet down. Go home. Don't do anything rash. You see, as the town clerk, he has to be sure that their relative freedom from Rome isn't taken away because they end up demonstrating that they're unable to govern themselves. If he ends up having a riot in the city, then he's going to be accountable to Rome. So Demetrius is worried about profitability, but the town clerk is worried about political science. Y'all got that? Did you know who's over profitability, and political science. King Jesus. 
we got two different lines of argument in Ephesus coming against one another. And guess what's going to happen? King Jesus is going to prevail. Behind it all, there's a sovereign God protecting His people and advancing His purposes. It doesn't make sense. There's a riot. People are going to die. But no, Christians don't die. The clerk argues there's no evidence that the men brought into the theater were guilty of disrespecting Artemis. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think there was evidence that they had disrespected Artemis? Of course there was. They were Paul's compadres. He was preaching that there's one true God, maker of heaven and earth. Of course they were guilty of disrespecting Artemis. Probably not directly, but by implication, because they were magnifying the one true God. But the town clerk just wants to get out of there and get everybody home. In verse 38, the clerk points out that there is a way to bring a lawsuit or a charge against these Christians. And instigating a mob trial wasn't it. And in verse 39, he adds that if they really want to ask for a policy change, they can't do it in a mob, but they can do it in the regular assembly. And in verse 40, he says, look, we are at risk of being charged with rioting or rebellion because we don't have any reasonable explanation for why we're here. And finally, in verse 41, he he dismisses the indefensible and unlawful assembly, and Gaius and Aristarchus presumably leave innocent and unharmed. Church, here's what I want you to know. When revival comes to a community, it will bring economic and social change. It will lead some to attack us as being at odds with our community and its values. But it will also provide yet one more opportunity for God to demonstrate He is sovereign over all, that His purposes and His people prevail. God wasn't done with Paul. He wasn't done with the church in Ephesus, and so God intervened. God's not done with North Roanoke. God's not done with the Roanoke Valley. His purposes and His people will prevail. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we need you. We need you to prevail in our lives. God, prevail in our homes and in our marriages and in our parenting, in our relationships, in our church. God, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. We want him to be magnified and exalted in us. God, do it in us and then do it in the Roanoke Valley. And God, when we encounter adversity and opposition, remind us of the king we follow who did it all, paid it all. God, may your word prevail. May your word prevail. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.